Chapter Six of Blake of the Rattlesnake. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Blake of the Rattlesnake by Frederick T. Jane. Chapter Six: The Bombardment. While I was getting convalescent in this little paradise, the war was working its course, but into most of the details of events in which I had no part I do not propose to enter. Abler pens than mine have done justice to these great battles already, and this is merely a little story of the war, as it seemed to a junior officer little conversant with its main issues. It was while I lay at Haslar that news came of the great fight off Toulon in which, after a conflict of desperate valour, both sides lay by, unable to do any more injury to each other. And of how the Russians, breaking through the Dardanelles to take the British fleet in the rear, fell a prey to the second-class torpedo-boats of the Vulcan, and of all the other momentous events of those three days, in which nearly all the belligerent vessels disappeared from the Mediterranean, having mutually destroyed each other. Almost simultaneously came the news of the Kronstadt disaster, a disaster that sounded the first note of the downfall of the empire. My marine brother, in the Northampton, sent me a letter describing this event, which I may be pardoned for quoting here. The first part, as may be seen, was written before the catastrophe. "'My dear brother,' he wrote, I've been a long time in replying to your last, but have been hoping to have some news to send, and hitherto things have been dull as ditch-water with us. But nous avons change tout cela, as the new admiral is going to bombard Kronstadt tomorrow, and God help us in this old packet. However, I won't croak, but will send you a flowing description of it when it's over. That is, if I get through, which is open to doubt, I'm afraid." We've a jolly ship's company, though most of them are old stagers. Old Punchy, whom you doubtless remember, is our commander, and a regular zealot he is. He didn't expect to get his promotion, and having got it after all, is as proud as his namesake, and spends all his time over spit and polish and having the ship painted. Odin, as we call the skipper, is bitten that way too, so between them we're about the smartest-looking ship out here though that's about as far as it goes, as our crew are a miserable set, all told. Our fellows are only passable, while there aren't twenty decent blue jackets, all the rest are raw landlubber recruits, and I'm told that the stokers are, if anything, worse, since Odin has managed to lick the sailor recruits into some sort of shape, though it exhausted his vocabulary to do it. We have the inevitable war correspondent on board, and as he has never been to sea before in his life, you may guess we get some fun out of him. All his previous existence seems to have been spent in the House of Commons press gallery, so we younger fellows pull his leg no end, though my conscience pricks me now and then, as he's a good sort at bottom and takes it all very well. Our young doctor supplies all the technical parts of his letters home or he and the A.P. between them do, so you may guess the sort of stuff that goes to his paper. I don't think our young sawbones knows the royal oak from a torpedo boat, but somehow or other, correspondents without technical knowledge always go to these fellows. 
I fancy he twigged at last that their information was a bit unreliable, for after a bit he tried to tap me, and that's what started the leg-pulling. For, upon my word, I'm not exactly A-1 in naval matters, though I'm pretty fair in gunnery. I hear they've got a correspondent in the Royal Oak, who writes a couple of learned works on the Navy every year, and he, when last heard of, had been trying to teach the Admiral how to capture Kronstadt. Offered to take command for him, some fellows say. But his dodge was a cute one all the same. Still. I have the two after ten-inch guns, same sort as you had in the poor old Nelson. But how we're going to fight these muzzle-loading old pop-guns is beyond me altogether. Still, we've got to try somehow. You'd hardly think from this yarn that we're going into action tomorrow at daybreak, but it's best to try and keep one's pecker up, and I prefer not to think of what's got to be gone through between now and this time tomorrow. Well, good-bye, old fellow, if this should chance to be my last letter. I've got to write to the mater yet. It's already gone four bells, so lights out will be round if I don't hurry up. The other part of the letter was dated some days later. I've not been able to write before, old man, because after the bombardment, of which you'll have heard ere this, I've had too much to do helping the doctors, and so on. I believe our fleet is altogether knocked out of time. The poor old Northo is, anyway. It makes me sick to think of the fight even now. I don't think I'll ever get the taste of it out of my mouth. We got in at daybreak, and opened fire at about four thousand yards on a big fort. But our guns aren't much good at that distance even, so Odin edged in nearer till we got within two thousand. It was a curious sensation laying the rear port ten inch. I did it myself, to make sure of a good shot, and I think it got home, but the port being closed directly we fired, I can't say for certain. There were splashes in the water all round us, but the Russians hadn't got the range then, and it just gave us time to get cool behind the armoured bulkhead. I don't know how the poor devils amidships can have felt, with only a sheet of thin iron between them and the enemy. And to make matters worse, they hadn't got the wire screens which should go between the nine-inch guns to localize shell-fire. These were left behind at Chatham, of course. We might have been able to make some sort of shift with the torpedo-nets, but they were out and down, and a good thing they were, too, for we had at least three torpedoes explode in them. It seems very tame and prosy as I write this, and think of what the real affair was. It's little more exciting than our log, which says, in your regular executive style, Bombarded Kronstadt. Opened fire 6 a.m. at 4,000 yards to 2,000 yards range. Received heavy fire about 6.30. Had to haul out of action at 6.45. Battery totally disabled and greater part of crew killed or wounded. That is all correct enough, but bald. Well, as I was saying, the shot kept on missing us and we were getting quite chirpy, when there came a couple of violent explosions from the battery amidships. The whole place was filled with an infernal suffocating stink, and I just caught a glimpse through the smoke of a gun falling over and everything smashed a smithereens. We were just about to fire our starboard gun, for the ship was shifting stern on to the shore batteries, when it ran back on its stand and toppled over, crushing three men beneath it and sending the rest helter-skelter. I was upset by them, 
but was soon on my legs again and over to the other gun, which we eased off directly we got a sight. I looked round at the battery amidships. There was a great hole in the deck, with dead and wounded men lying all around it, and, even as I looked, there came a swish-swish-swish, and an awful tearing sound. The ship's turning head exposed the main deck to the forts, which had now got our range with small QF and machine guns, and the poor devils amidships were going down like ninepins. Of those left alive, some were rushing wildly up and down, screaming for mercy, driven clean mad, and others were jumping out of the ports into the sea. It was all over in a few seconds, but by the time the ship had got round again, with the fore bulkhead against the enemy's fire, there wasn't a single man left standing at our eight unprotected guns. My God! It was an awful thing to look upon, an awful thing! There was a lull now, for a few minutes, as neither of our bow-guns were firing, and overhead the Hotchkiss guns had ceased. They began again for a minute or so, then as suddenly stopped, and nothing was to be heard save the groaning of the wounded, the roar of battle outside, and the occasional thud of a shot striking the bulkhead, which made the old Northo tremble from head to stern. Two or three times there came more violent shocks still, and we were all thrown off our feet, while the ship lurched as though she were foundering. I suppose we must have gone on working our gun, but I can't remember anything definite till I saw the captain coming down the companion by the ship's bell. He was badly wounded, but in voice and bearing kept the same as ever. "'Hum, Mr. Bovary, you'll be glad to hear where to keep out of this. Why, damn me, it's worse here than on deck!' He spoke as though nothing very unusual had happened, and it pulled me together. I found then that we were out of range, and had been for some time. A cruiser had towed us out of danger, for the ship, being pretty well blown inside out, could neither steer nor steam. Of the five hundred fifty who made our crew in the morning, only about one hundred thirty, mostly stokers, answered to the muster-roll, and of these less than forty are unhurt. I am one of them, I am thankful to say. It seems Odin had the stokers up to man the QF guns, because all the blue jackets at them were killed. Darcy, my captain, is still alive, but very seriously wounded, and the skipper and commander are still on their legs. All the other executives are down. Our newspaper man, the purser, and the padre have all lost the number of their mess, killed while trying to take a wounded man below. Our armor has been pierced in several places, but on the whole has kept shot out well, as it is dented all over where they've hit it, and rebounded or glanced off. We have lost the Royal Oak, Aurora, Monarch, and Temeraire, while the other ships are so knocked about that, had the Russian ironclads come out, they'd have sunk the lot of us. Luckily, providentially, they didn't. Afraid of our torpedo-boats, they let us draw off, but this licking will do us no end of harm. The Northampton is ordered home. I hope she won't sink, by the way. A fresh fleet has just met us, not before they were wanted. Their news would, however, be stale to you. I hope this coal-strike scare hasn't got any truth in it. We have had the most alarming rumours of it. Chin-chin, <sighs> old chap. Your affectionate brother— Charles Bovary. P.S. Have you heard that the Royal Oak was sunk by a dynamite gun?
The coal strike, to which my brother alluded, is all too well known in England. Everyone remembers this repetition on a gigantic scale of the coal strike of 1893, how it spread all over Europe, and was started to show the brotherhood of workers. While they shot them down or made them work abroad, the British government let things be till the coal reserves were exhausted and our fleets well-nigh idle. Everyone, too, knows the panic that came about when the Admiral in the Baltic sent telegram after telegram saying that his fleet was laid up useless in the Abo Archipelago for want of fuel, and how, when it was too late, troops were sent to end the strike and compel the men to work. Fewer people are aware how our Baltic squadron got such coal as it had. Cute Yankees sent over colliers flying French or Russian flags. There was a nominal capture by British ships, and the coal changed hands for about its weight in gold. Blake and I were reported fit for duty on the same day. He had got his extra stripe for sinking the Davu, which was made a deal of in the papers. He got a destroyer as his new ship, and he did me the honour of fixing things at the A, so that I came as his sub, for I had got that amount of promotion over the Davu business. I have omitted to state that while we were on the sick list, our poor old Ratto went down with colours flying off the French coast. A cruiser settled her hash. The Admiralty had just started that very wise plan of renaming new ships after such vessels as had gone down, after rendering themselves famous in the war. Truly Blake's new ship, one of the latest destroyers, was better with her new name of Rattlesnake than under her old one of Snarler or Jellyfish. I forget now which of these names was her original one. The new Ratto was 250 feet long, carried four torpedo tubes amidships, one 12-pounder QF and five 3-pounder QF guns, and could make about 30 knots an hour speed. Unlike the majority of the destroyers, she belonged to the Vernon instead of to the excellent fellows, and so was practically put into commission as a large, independent, sea-going torpedo boat, the Admiralty having soon found out that a certain number of officers acting more or less on their own fancy could do a tremendous amount of damage to the enemy. Our complement was fifty, five above the allotted number, and besides Blake and myself we carried an acting sub, who, poor beggar, was too seasick most of the time to be of much service, except when there was any fighting on. He was then as a fiend incarnate. Death was a far easier foe to face than seasickness. On the whole, we did fairly well in the Ratto. Her size made her a far better sea-boat than the earlier Havoc and Boxer types, and we had things pretty much our own way, Blake having had the luck, or influence, to get a seasoned crew. Many of the destroyers, manned by half-raw seamen, were as good as useless in the bad weather then prevailing, weather which kept nearly all the hostile small craft in port. We, of course, couldn't keep the sea for more than a few days on end. Still, it was a thing to get out at all. We were ordered to the Baltic with some cruisers, both to reinforce the fleet there, and to help accompany and protect a large fleet of colliers, which had been filled the moment the coal strike ended. Before we left Portsmouth, however, a meeting took place on board the torpedo depot ship Vernon, which, though not very lengthy or largely attended, was destined to alter the history of the world.
End of chapter.